Hey everyone and welcome to the Greater Than Podcast. My name's Elijah Murrow. So honored and blessed you've taken out the time to join us today. Wherever you find yourself in the world, God's doing good things and he's doing it in your life. And I'm so excited and honored to have you guys here. Take out a moment, leave us a rating, a comment, a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the podcast to get out and reach people. I'm so excited again to have, to be joined by uh, someone who is precious to me and to this ministry that the Lord's called me to. I'm so thankful for him. Uh, Chris Palmer, professor. That's what I like to call I call him <laughs> Professor Chris Palmer. He's back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm so excited to have him here. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, Elijah. Happy birthday to you. I'm putting you on the spot here, but happy birthday. Happy birthday to me during the time of this recording. It is January 11th. That's my birthday, man. So thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Uh, I can't think of a better way to spend my birthday than getting into the scriptures with uh, one of my favorite uh, Greek scholars, man, in my opinion. <laughs> my goodness. But uh, listen, guys, the purpose of the podcast, First John uh, 4, 4, you're, you're of God, little children, you've already overcome. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Uh, we love talking about these things from a biblical perspective that are going on in our world. And I think that this uh, book of Jude that we're going to be talking about uh, is pertinent to that, to talk about things that we're seeing even still today. Uh, I'm excited for that. Let me pray. And then the next voice you'll hear is going to be Brother uh, Chris Palmer, uh, the professor himself. I'm just going to be calling him professor all podcast. So <laughs> here we go. But um, let's pray and we'll dig right on in. Father God, uh, we're so thankful for this time. We thank you for your word, for the integrity of the word in the proper context. Father, we thank you uh, for for Brother Chris, Professor Chris, we thank you, Father, for the ministry that you called him to. What a blessing he is, not just to my ministry starting out, but also to so many others, Father. We thank you, Father, for it. We receive him. We receive the gift that you uh, made him to be to the body of Christ. And we thank you, Father, for speaking through him as a very oracle of God to correct us, to reprove us, to get us right in line with the heart of the text and the integrity of the text. And we give you praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Brother Chris, please, sir. Well, Elijah, I was uh, pleased when you asked me to uh, talk about Jude because Jude is a book that has had some significance in, in my life. Um, I think normally, um, just just I've always been attracted to shorter, shorter epistles that are in Scripture. Um, <clears throat> I think there's something, just as, as an author, um, and someone who enjoys literature, there's something unique about brevity that I appreciate. Um, you know, I'm not always, I, I guess I'm not of the school where long-winded preaching and long-winded winded writing is always better writing and better preaching. Um, actually, in, in school, uh, my students, they get word limits on the paper. Now, when you're, you're in high school, it's like, hey, you get, you know, you're trying to, you, you have a struggle filling up you know, a thousand words, but in, in master's, um, you're working on your master's degree or even in your, your doctorate, you, you complain because it's not enough. You know, you're like, Hey, I don't want, mm -hmm. I only get a thousand words. I want to write 2000. So you learn at that level that, that brevity really is everything. Um, because you have to be exacting about what you say. So in a sense, I think that's what the epistles, uh, Jude's epistle, Jude's letters, we call it the first, second, third, John, second, John, third, John, there's something mysterious about these th to me. And then on top of that, you know, Jude had a, um, Jude kind of gets really tucked away between revelation and third John. So not a lot of people go to it and you don't really hear people going through 
uh, do that much in on a Sunday morning. It's just maybe they will do the 19th first and talk about prayer by the spirit. Um, mm-hmm. Or maybe verse number four, when they've had enough of some sort of false doctrine where you're talking about contending for the faith. But aside from that, you really don't hear a lot about Jude, what's, what's in it. And then thirdly, uh, when I was studying uh, and, and getting my degree uh, in exegetical theology, the professor, we had a class called Reads in Greek Literature. So we were reading other things that was other Greek literature that wasn't scripture. Uh, but we did get around to coming to Jude and you know, we had to work through translating the book of Jude. And it was, it was quite a challenge because even though it's short, Jude has some of the more difficult Greek in the New Testament. And I, like I've said this many times, when I talk about Jude, I blame it on the word order because, you know, in, in English, we have what's called the right branching sentences. So we are identifying the subject, the verb, uh, and the complement based on the way the sentence moves. So I don't say store Elijah went cereal, milk, bought, ate. Mm-hmm. You know, I say Elijah went to the store and bought milk, milk and cereal and ate it. In Greek, they don't do that way. You don't recognize subject, verb, complement by, okay, um, right to left. It's it's by cases, okay, it's, uh, nominative, dative, these cases that you, you come to recognize. And your brain just is trained to, to see it. The, a, a Greek-speaking brain is just trained to see that and know what's being talked about. It's difficult for us as English speakers. And so when you don't, your mind's not shaped that way by by having experience, it's, it's very difficult to kind of get at what he's trying to say. But the advantage of that is that you can, you can use, you can place words in an emphatic position where they can mean something more. And Jude does a lot of this and, and, and does a lot of emphasizing here. So it actually becomes very exciting to read and very rewarding once you figure out how, how it's done. So for those three reasons, Jude is a real fascinating book. And, and lastly, I think it's there's other reasons we'll talk about, but you know, kind of setting things up here, Jude um, uses what's called hepax legumina, which are words that are not used except for one time in scripture. So um, he's has his very he has his own unique vocabulary when it comes to the canon. He's using words that other biblical authors are not using. And there are large words, and he, he says these words in the context of very inflammatory speech. Um, it's very charged, uh, emotionally charged. Okay, he's upset, he's angry, you can tell that he doesn't have a very favorable opinion of these people, that these, these false teachers that he's, he's criticizing. But he has the grounds to be angry. You know, there's times where you, you pick up very quickly his angry speech that's in here, of course, inspired by the Spirit, infallible and errant word of God. Okay. But at the same time, and then people want to repeat this, but, but Jude also very authoritative. I mean, he's the half brother of Jesus and he's also the, uh, the full brother of James, the apostle. So mm-hmm. um, he, he, I guess, has a right to be this way. He has authority to speak yeah. in this type of manner. I, last I checked, it wasn't half brother of Jesus or related to yeah, yeah, yeah. the key figure of the New Testament, who is James. I mean, even at that time, you could argue that James probably, and, and probably had more authority than the Apostle Paul. Um, so, yeah, and for, for that reason, um, he has a right to be this way. Uh, so, and then finally, James makes use, of, excuse me, Jude makes use of the pseudopigrapha, which are, the word pseudo means false or fake, pseudo, okay. 
these 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 writings that were forgeries. Okay, so a pseudepigrapher is any any writing from way back when. Okay, the you could say the first. I mean, it goes back to fourth fifth century BC all the way until first second century third A third AD. We have these writings that were forgeries, meaning that they were. Let's say the Gospel of Thomas is an example. Thomas is being said to have been written by Thomas, but Thomas didn't write it. Somebody else is ascribing it to Thomas, and for that reason, we say it's, gotcha. it's a forgery. Okay, so, mm-hmm. um, and but but and so people say, well, st- there's there's this. If you haven't studied pseudepigrapher, you, you get the impression, oh, these are terrible. Who would ever want to? These are forgeries. We need to stay away. They're false scriptures. Not well. I wouldn't say that. I say they're really worth reading. I'd encourage any believer. Um, if you have time and you, there's interest there, God's leading you, um, and not even have a super leading, if you're just interested in it, to take some time and read these because it actually gives you an idea of where culture was at at that time. And and actually Jude makes use of the book of First Enoch. I mean, he's quoting it in there. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. using it. Um, even if uh, Paul does the same thing. I mean, when Paul gives you the names of, in First in, in Corinthians, Yannis and Jambres, Okay, this is not found in Jewish scripture. We don't know where is he getting these names from. We don't see this in Torah. Okay, he probably got this from the Midrash somewhere, which is extra biblical literature to give these names. And he's putting it in there. So they do inform, not that they agree with everything, but they do inform the biblical authors. That they've taken some information that they may perceive as accurate about them, or they may use these as a means of illustrating it. I mean, it, whether they agree with it or not, it still serves as a good illustration. And Jude does this. So you have these issues in here and he's, he's doing it. So for that reason, I mean, look at this book is what I think, uh, 25 verses and for 25 verses, it's, it's really packing a punch. So for those, those several reasons, I think it's really a cool book. There's not a lot of doctoral work done in the book of Jude that I find that you don't, people want to be Pauline scholars, Johannine scholars, less people want to be Petrine scholars. And then nobody ever is talking about Jude. So I think, all the right pieces are there for, for some people to dive in and, and roll their sleeves up and look at this book. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. I, I, I always found it interesting about Enoch, right. That he quotes uh, Enoch and, and that, uh, you know, it's not something we have in our tra- traditional, in the traditional Bible, obviously. So um, as we dive deeper into this uh Professor Chris, like what, like, what are some things that stand out to you about this, this, this book? Like, what are some other things that you would look at and say, Hey, um, this is really something that would encourage our faith or something that applies today. I mean, I know there's several, but once again, take your time and just, you know, dive, dive, we'll dive on in with you, man. I I got my snorkel. I got my snorkel, Chris. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I mean, if you're talking about first Enoch here, I mean, we'll, we'll set up, I think, it's good to set up kind of before we get in here and look at the devotional aspects of things. It's good to just kind of know yeah. a little bit about the book. Um, he does quote yeah. Enoch. Now there's a lot of Christians that you find that can get weird with the book of first Enoch. And um, you ever heard that saying Elijah, where you just, you know, enough of something to make, to make you dangerous type thing. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, people that have, they want to start going a little deeper. They think because they found first Enoch and you can get copies of it today, different translations of it. Okay. And they start reading it and they start believing everything it has to say. And they think, wow, mm-hmm. why isn't this in new Testament canon? I've been asked a million times why, why Enoch's not in canon in our canon, although it is in some canons, the, the, um, the Coptic church in Ethiopia actually has it part of their canon. Um, 
so it's like, well, what, what do we do with all this? I think, like I said, that, that's, that's what makes it worth reading. But the book of Enoch is essentially about, um, it's a play. It wasn't written by Enoch. It was, came much later than that. And although Jesus would have been familiar with it, um, and it's about Genesis yeah, chapter six, it starts off with this book called the book of the watchers, where it just kind of gives more of a just rundown of how these angels beheld women. They were good angels. They were, they were watching over the affairs of men. And then they watch so much so that they become lustful. They start lusting over the daughters of men and they leave their state uh, and they come have illicit sexual relationship with these women. Okay. And, and this is horrible for a couple of reasons. Number one, beyond fornication. Okay. And uh, John's going to, uh, Jude is going to make use of the fact that they left their state which means that they went mm-hmm. after strange flesh. They, they're angels, they're angelic beings, and they're going after the flesh of, of women. This is not, this is not how, this is, uh, this is a indictment on, on creation. And so there's a creation theology that's in there that, that Jude begins to develop. And he starts talking about God's rightful place. Okay. Human beings are to, okay. Um, procreate with human beings, dogs with dogs, mm-hmm. frogs with frogs. Okay. Snakes with snakes. So this is, again, a perversion of creation. And so you, you begin to, this is kind of cool because you see how, how uh, sacred creation is to God. And, and beyond that, um, Jude uh, goes after the false teachers and he uses Enoch to do that. So that element's there. Um, so with that said, I mean, it, there's a lot to be, to be appreciated about this book. And I think this is probably why um, it doesn't get a lot of Sunday morning airtime. Uh, because you know who yeah. wants to hear this on on a Sunday morning? So, uh, and I will say that another uh, kind of getting off Enoch here for a second, but another mm-hmm. interesting literary feature. One of the things I teach students is when you're when you're reading a book and focusing on maybe it, it would be a good thing for maybe six months to focus on one, not just book of the Bible, but author. How do authors write? You know, my PhD studies are in John, so. John has this unique literary style. I was just writing something today before I got on this podcast about John's use of irony. He, he's ironic in just about everything that he writes. Um, I'll give you an example. For instance, this is how John writes. He's always, the irony is the use of, excuse me, manipulating scripture or manipulating a, a word. It's literary device that manipulates a word so that it doesn't mean what you expect it to mean. It means what it means, but it means something more. So Jesus says in John chapter 11, he tells uh, in, in his discourse in John 11, he tells everyone that he's the light and those that don't follow him are in darkness. And if they go out in the darkness, they'll stumble. But if they follow him, they'll walk in light. That's John 11, 9, 10. But it picks up later. And there's going to be some implicit references to this. So Jesus goes to, um, to the Passover supper with his disciples. They're sitting there before he's crucified. I mean, the book of John really deals with the last two weeks of Jesus' life, right? You have John chapter, mm-hmm. what, I think 11, he resurrects. Lazarus from the dead. I mean, you don't have much of Christ's life aside from two weeks at the last half of his last two weeks of his life is the whole, whole second half of the book. And yeah. when Judas leaves the table in John chapter 13, it says that he goes out at night. Now it's really important because this whole theme of night has been set up throughout John's book. So you have night throughout the whole book, right? So when he says that mm. Judas goes out in the night, does he mean the time of the day? Yes. In a literal sense, he does. But is he meaning something more? He probably does mean something more. I think he's making use of the fact that he goes out at night. 
he's walking in darkness. So it shows the relationship yeah. of what happens when you, you walk away from Christ. But there's, there's, but we don't want to leave it there because there's even more about this. And then you get into verse, and then seven chapters later, you get to 18 where they're done with being at the Passover. And now they're going to go to the garden of Gethsemane where Christ is going to suffer. Right. Mm-hmm. And it just says that Jesus and his disciples make their way past the Kidron Valley into the garden of Gethsemane. The scene cuts a few verses later, it shows Judas. Now it shows Judas and his band, his gang. Okay. The officers of the high priest, Pharisees and, um, the scribes, right. Uh, the soldiers, the, 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 the soldiers yeah. of Rome. And what does the scripture tell you they're doing? They have, they have, they have, they have swords and they have lamps and they have torches. It's really interesting that he tells you that he gives you that detail there because it doesn't say that Jesus and his disciples took lamps and torches. There's no, there's no hint that they even did that, but he makes it, maybe they did, but he doesn't tell you that. And that's, what's important. What he tells you though, is that Judas and his gang took lamps and torches. They needed, they needed instruments for light because he's alluding back to the fact that again, they're in darkness and they're not following the true light. The true light is Jesus. So the fact that he includes this detail of them needing lamps and needing torches is just another way for John to poke at and jab at the fact that Judas is without light because he's not following the true light and he's actually in darkness and he's stumbling in that darkness. And you see what happens to him in darkness. He ends up, Matthew's account tells us in 27th chapter, and he ends up taking his own life. And so this is a use of irony. Mm -hmm. When the reader sees lamps and torches, and he doesn't see the disciples doing it, he sees uh, uh, he sees Judas with it. He's probably like, wow. Okay. He's, he's, he's going back to John chapter 11. Again, he's saying those that follow Christ are following the true light. Those who go out in the night, they're going to stumble because they're in the darkness. And they need their own instruments for light. This is a use of, this is how John wrote. Jude has his own writing style. Jude likes to write in triplets. Everything that he lists, not everything, but a lot of times he lists what you call triads. Verse number one, how he described himself, how he describes his readers in verse number one, verse number two, when he gives a blessing to his readers, verse number eight, um, when he talks about the transgressions of the apostate dreamers, verse 11, when he talks about how, what the examples of apostasy are, and then 20 to 21, he he uses a Trinitarian triad. So he's using, he's talking in threes, you know, he's basically talking, giving examples in threes. And this is how Jude is talking. So when you you put all that together, you have a really interesting book with a guy who knows how to write. And um, I think that as preachers for something encouraging that if you really want to make the most of this book, studying literary style, studying its background and preparing yourself, you can really make use of the text and have a a really great sermon based on it, which we can get into uh, at this point. No, that's that's good, Chris. I love it. I love the... What I love about having Chris on the podcast, guys, is that it's just it helps to open up scripture more when you know a little bit more about background, about context. Uh, This is something that's big on my heart for the podcast just as a whole is talking about things from a a biblical perspective, like and not because it's hard to because a lot of times we're talking. We all have a lens that we see through, right, where it comes to scripture and it comes to things of that nature. And I think a lot of times we try to make and this may sound off, you know, but we try to make the word apply to us instead of finding out what the, the writer is talking about, who he's talking to, and then letting the Holy Spirit uh talk to us through that perspective. If that makes sense. Uh, Chris could say it better than what I'm saying it, but, <laughs> no, you're but doing I great believe, job. 
But I believe that's the heart of it. So I'm really excited about this. And so don't sleep on a podcast like this, man. This is going to be something that helps us, that helps us to stay in the middle of the road about some things. Uh, These kind of episodes for the podcast are strategic because it's about finding out what the author is talking about, uh, the heart that he's talking about it in, and it helps us to go to a higher level. So, uh, Brother Chris, please continue, sir. So many people, I think with, with the, with dawn of social media, they, they want, you know, we hear everybody talking about whatever they want to talk about. And I think that we have a lot of people saying whatever they want to say and, and making egocentric interpretations of, of scripture. And then when it comes to biblical literacy, they don't, they don't really have it though. They say they have it or they say they're interested in it. And then when you really start talking about going down that road, they're not interested anymore. So um, if you can hang with this kind of stuff, you know, look a little bit about my testimony, kind of draw your readers back in or your listeners back in on fire evangelist for a lot of years, preaching this and that, but I had it and I can still have that in me very much. Um, but I, I really felt the need for scholarship within Pentecostalism. Okay. In, in our movements, uh, our charismatic expressions, we needed scholarship. I mean, real scholarship, not just looking into W vines and, and picking out our favorite Greek word, but actual real bona fide scholarship. And I knew that doing that was going to, at least take a decade of, of, of consistent study. And then I put myself to it and the scripture started opening up at a level that just, it really is amazing. Um, and I felt if I could couple that with the power and fire of God, if you will, um, it, re- it would be effective. And it has been, it's drawn people to yeah. um, maybe want to study a little bit deeper. Okay. Let's go back yeah. into, into Jude and kind of make some, some uh, observations here about Jude and um, that are important. So number one, we get to the scripture. Let me pull my, my Greek Bible up here. Uh, mm-hmm. So we look at Jude chapter one, verse one. Um, let me just, I have Logos Bible software and sometimes it doesn't want to cooperate. Here we go. Okay. So the first, so, so, so this is so much in this first passage. So in, in English, in the ESV, it says Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Um, in Greek, it says this. Yodas Eusu Christo Dulos. Okay, so the very first thing that we see is the introduction of his name, Jude. And then we see, we don't see servant. Remember, there's no word order. The way we see in the Greek is Yesu Christo Dulos. So he's putting Jesus Christ as the emphatic position. So he's placing Christ there. And he's suggesting here that you know the emphasis of the book is Christ. Um, and and it, what's interesting is the fact that Jane, like I said before, Jude is the brother. He is the brother of Jesus. He is Christ's brother. He could technically say Mm -hmm. the brother of Jesus, but he doesn't say that. He doesn't. He says servant. Okay. So by, by saying that he's the servant of Christ, he's basically emphasizing his heart here that what's, what's more important to him is not his position of physical attachment to Christ. Okay. But rather, what's important to him is the fact that he he has the opportunity to serve Jesus. Okay, and he's calling him. He's not just calling him Jesus. He's calling him Christ. So he's admitting, as the brother, as an eyewitness, that this is the Christ that that was and is and is to come. So he's admitting who Christ is, and and this would have been a massive indictment, okay, to the false teachers at that time because he's basically saying that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. He's saying he came in the flesh, which at that time, this was pre-Gnostic at that time. They weren't, they didn't believe that about Christ. They believe that he appeared mm-hmm. to be Messiah. Like he had this, 
he appeared to be human, I should say, but he was kind of like a phantasm. He's saying, no, he's, he's come in the flesh. He's, he's in the flesh. And so, um, that's, I think that's really important. Um, and then he, he says here that he's the, then he goes on and says Adelphos of Jacob, which is James. He's the brother of James, which is really important because now he's, he's setting up his authority. He in fact does have authority. He is the brother of James. And then you see here that he writes to those who are called. So he gives, he gives three things about Christians. Okay. Um, he says, number one, those that are called. All right. The second thing that he says about them is he says, those who are, let me pull my thing back up here. Um, those who are beloved in the father. And he says here, those who are kept for Jesus Christ. So there you see another triplet. And that really mm. begins to set up the authority of, of really what's important for Christianity is number one, when you're in Christ, you're called. I think this gives us kind of a, a notion of salvation. I'm not saved because I called myself. God called me. Now, I believe God calls us all to be saved. I don't think he just calls a few, a chosen few. Um, I think he, he calls us all. Um, you know, the altar call, uh, when I got born again, I heard the preacher, right, Elijah? I mean, I heard him, but I, through the preacher was God calling me. I don't think the conviction that we have in our hearts to be saved is, is the preacher doing that. I think this serves as a lesson to a lot of us is that when people do experience true conviction, it is from the Holy spirit. It's not from ourselves. And I think sometimes when we get in the flesh and we try to preach and, and move people to the altar, um, we, we, we heat a compunction on people and conviction that turns into drudgery versus a true, a true liberating conviction that, that frees us from sin. You know what I'm saying? That's good. I mean, I think, That's really you good. know, I, I, there is one preacher, I won't say who, um, but every time they preach, they get massive altar calls. I mean, I've discussed this with other preachers. I'm like, they are, they're getting these huge altar calls and bigger than altar calls I'd ever get. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And I don't even really think this. like when I listen to this person, I'm like, you know, I don't see the deal. I'm sure people think that about me, but I'm like this, they're not like some thundering, booming orator who's, sure, I mean, it's sure. just basic talk. They're just talking to you. And when they give the altar call, all these people come down and that's the spirit working through them to call yeah. people to salvation. But when people get in the flesh, like I said, they, they, they try to do that on their own. I think we see this sometimes in street preachers and fire and brimstone preachers, and it becomes really ugly and they don't get the result. Or if people do come down, they're not coming because God is drawing them. They're coming because they feel guilty and burned. And it, it really can lead to a lot of, a lot of ugliness. You know what I'm saying, Elijah? That's good, Chris. That's so good. Yes, sir. So, so that is, um, so there's something about calling there that's very important. And then we see beloved in the father. And then we see this idea here of being, of being kept for Jesus Christ, which I think is, is really important to understand that, you know, um, God keeps us. And there, there's yeah. something that, that there's a sanctifying work that I think Jude is referring to here. Uh, that's telling us that through the, through the, the, the sin and um, degradation of our society, that it's Christ who sanctifies us and sets us apart right? Through a spirit. Mm. Um, I mean, if you look at, I mean, there's a notion that people don't want to have 
children today because why would they want to raise kids in a world that we live in? I think that's anti-God and I think that's anti-Christ. Mm-hmm. And to say that really negates our confidence in the work of the spirit, right? If, if we have our, my salvation, no matter what time I'm in and raising kids in a society that is full of ungodliness is not our responsibility. We don't call our own children to be saved and we don't, we raise them in, in the fear of God, but for salvation and for them to know Christ, it's going to take the work of God in their life to do that. And so we, yeah. we need to put confidence and we need to put trust in that, that God can keep them. That's good. So, am I, am I, are we, we, we still good. We're still, we're still rolling here. Oh, we're still good. We're, we're trucking, Chris. I'm, I'm just over here. Like, well, that's so good. Oh, that's good. That, that's good. No, I'm here, man. It's a buffet, man. I'm, 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 I'm on thirds, man. Second thirds. Let's keep yeah, going. Yes, sir. <laughs> good, <laughs> but I'll good. say this. I will say this. The text is so rich. This is why I, we do this. Cause like we see how rich the text is like, we just read that. It says, Oh, sanctified, loved, preserved. But if you have an understanding of these words, the background, all this, it just, it just opens it up. Right. It's like a, it's like that, that 4k picture, you know, you're, you're seeing it a lot clearer and uh, it's that, it's that IMAX ratio, right? It's that, that enhanced picture. And so I love it. So yes, sir. Continue. Yeah. So he tells and then he tells the Christians here, I mean, he's writing to Christians and he says to them, well, you know, may mercy, peace, and love, may these three things be multiplied to you. I mean, why, why would they need these? I mean, this was pretty standard for a, um, a greeting at the time. And this is kind of what mm-hmm. he said. So I don't know if we want to make too much of this, but I do think it is relevant because they would need mercy at that time because <clears throat> they're dealing with, dealing with heretics and, false beliefs and false ideology. So moving forward from this, we get to some of the more interesting verses. I think, I mean, I think they're all interesting, but some of the more, Mm -hmm. I I shouldn't say interesting, but maybe more well-known verses. Um, Jude says here, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. So, I mean, this, this really, this him writing about our common salvation is kind of interesting because the fact that he wants to write to them about, common salvation probably tells you that there was a treatise at that time that was going around about what salvation looked like. There was already theological Mm -hmm. ideas that were being developed by that time about what salvation is. I mean, those further developed throughout church history, but he was going to lay out some doctrine, give them some doctrinal teaching that was, that was good for them and and, and built them up. Um, But that, that's not really what, what took place. Um, He said, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, uh, that was once uh, delivered to the saints. Now, this is a Greek term that implies struggle. It was used in boxing matches at that time. It was an offensive term that, that denoted an offensive strike against an opponent. So he's, he's wanting to make an offensive strike against the opponent. He wants to beat his opponents to the punch. And, you know, he's trying to uh, knock out the heresy that was, was being perpetuated around his community so that he could, um, you know, I think, and, I, and this really is, expresses a pastor's heart. Um, pastors are not just supposed to pastor the sense of giving good life advice and life skills, but they're really no, they mm-hmm. should be able to recognize heresy when they see it. And they should really have an apologetic skill to communicate and to knock it out. And articulation is important. Um, making use of scripture. I mean, if you look at how Jude does this, he doesn't just say that's bad. Don't believe that. I mean, he really has rhetorical skills to do this. 
literary literary skill, but also he makes use of again the Old Testament. He makes use of pseudepigrapha. He makes use of the sources that were available at the time to develop a, a strategy and to make an argument to refute what the false teachers were saying. And I think mm-hmm. that serves as an example to us that, you know, maybe in Pentecostal circles, charismatic circles, we want to follow the apostles and their miracles. And, you know, when you read early, when I'm working on my doctorate at the moment, I'm reading a lot of early Pentecostal literature um, and I'm going through uh, the apostolic faith, which was the um, first publication that came out of the industry was started by Seymour. Okay. They only have, the, we only have about 13 issues of that right now that we know of. Uh, but I've read every word of those and, you know, you hear a lot about miracles in there and, and, and they make a big, um, big deal about spirit baptism and good. They should, that was the distinctive mark of their movement. Um, and, and then you read the bridegroom's messenger, okay. Which was a Southern publication, uh, that, that developed a little bit later around 1910. And then the church of God evangel, which was the major publication for the church of God beginning in 1910. And they still actually produce it today. And you, you hear a lot in there about miracles and signs and wonders. And this is was kind of the big Pentecostal spin. I think a lot of our charismatic that's broken off into third wave type stuff, the healing revivals and word of faith movement and these types of things, which really make big bones about miracles and, and signs and wonders. But a lot of these movements haven't seen an emphasis on um, defending the faith or apologetics. Um, and I think that has to do with the fact that these movements were a, um, a correction towards modernity, which was happening in the universities in the late 1800s, that modernity was basically just an intellectual gospel um, that was of the head. And they felt that these Bible schools were teaching people rhetoric and intellect, but it wasn't effective. And I understand. So I understand why the Pentecostals became what they became. But I, I think that we throw the baby out with the bathwater sometimes, and we encourage people to think these apostles, these giant miracle workers, but somehow they didn't have a rhetorical, a rhetorical skill to defend their faith. Um, and we don't, mm-hmm. we don't emphasize that. And I think we've missed the boat on that area. I'm not saying get rid of the one, but I'm saying maybe make more of the other. And to teach people that this is very important too. And, you know, the apostles in, in my, my Petrian literature class, I show this, how, how Peter develops an argument against false teachers, Jude does the same thing. Paul, we know Paul does that. Um, yeah. So we're like, well, Paul was the brilliant one. No, I'm sorry, but if you study literature, you'll find he wasn't the only brilliant apostle. Okay, I, don't, I know they were fishermen, but at some point, they either used an amanuensis, someone to help them write these things, or they were they had developed in, in skill because it, no dummy could write this kind of stuff. And they, they knew how to make a defense for the gospel that wasn't just opinion, but that was, I mean, real, when I say rhetorical, I mean like forensic arguments using acceptable sources. It's like they were knew how to write a paper and defend yeah. the gospel using a paper. And it, it really is, it's encouraging. So I think as Christians uh, today, when we're in this, in this cultural battle, I don't think we should get into just cultural wars. I want Biden. I want Trump type stuff. I don't, I don't think we need Mm -hmm. to go there. Um, We're getting too political. Actually early Pentecostal discouraged that. What I do think we need to do though, is is find ways to utilize our scriptures in a way that Mm -hmm. we can, we can defend our faith. um, That that suggests we, um, 
and, and by defend faith, I don't mean, Elijah, I don't mean answer all the questions that atheists throw at us sure. because I don't think, I think that I was just reading uh, yesterday, uh, last night, um, who was it that said this? Gene of Norwich may have said this, that we are too finite to understand the mystery of suffering. Um, and I think we have to accept that there's a God who is good and all loving and all powerful, but at the same time, there is suffering. It's the mystery to us. So we don't quite understand it all. So, so we don't have to defend there, but I do think we need to defend things such as the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ and the essential doctrines that, that do oftentimes come under attack of the place that grace has in the life of the believer, um, mm-hmm. the place of holiness, because this is what the false teachers were going to do. I mean, if we get into a line upon line teaching on this, we'll see when, when Paul, when Jude starts calling them names, He's really indicting them because they've made a mockery of grace. Okay. And um, they're using grace as a means to sin. And he likens this, of course, to, to angels that did that, that left their first estate. And so um, I think defending a holy lifestyle, that is, um, mm-hmm. and I don't just mean when I say holy, I'm not, I think sometimes in, in more fundamentalist type circles, we, we think holy has to do with um, just a strict literal obedience to scripture. And I think that's really great, but it also, it can't neglect social suffering and the suffering of our brothers and pe- people that are around the world that, that, I mean, I was listening to a story yesterday of, of a, um, individual who uh, was very self-righteous, uh, and, and he was keeping the finer points of scripture, but at the same time, he, he didn't care about the social suffering that we see in the world. Okay. Sex trafficking and, and, um, mm-hmm racism that takes place, uh, you know, um, the, the degradation of human beings being sold. I mean, these, these are things that, that is really some of our big amongst our biggest problems in the world today that I think Christians should, should have a, um, have an empathy towards and, and want to see, um, yeah. want to see God, God change. No, I think that's I think that's good. And I love this idea of uh, contending for the faith, defending the faith, what it actually is, because, you know, I've seen a lot, Chris, and I know you have as well, because your background, like uh, there's a lot of contending of the faith, but they they call it that. But you're really promoting a political party mm-hmm. and you, you're you're elevating this one over that one, things of that nature. And so it's really refreshing yeah. to hear what he's actually talking about because you know a lot of times these things get twisted and marred this is why we're doing this right now this is why we're having this podcast to talk about like here's what's going on here's the context here's the heart and like i said not twisting that to make it be something that we can make it our thing but finding out what the spirit of god said and submitting to that yeah reading scripture politically i think is something that uh, classmates bible schools seminaries need to really teach because, I mean, look, they didn't have democracy back in, in the first century. So and, and Christians weren't really participating in, in that type of government. Christians were low. They weren't like. So I think there's an there's a sentiment in in John, at least in John, when you read the book of Revelation, that he's at odds against the Roman Empire. But then you have Paul that's kind of saying to submit to the government. You know, we need to be submissive. Sure. To them. So it's like there's a tension again, there's a tension that's there. What people do with that is they you get one side of christianity that just wants to say don't ever get involved in politics it's wrong Mm -hmm. i mean these are anabaptists and even more so than that neo-anabaptists who won't even 
call the police if someone breaks into their house in the middle of the night. Right. And then you have people that are like, <laughs> fire up the drums. Let's get, let's, let's load yeah. up on as many guns as I can get. And I want, I can have 500 guns in my house and that's my right. That's my right as an American. And they, and it's like, <laughs> where's the balance in all this? And then, and look, you get some people that are over the top right-wing conservatives. Okay. And then you get some people that are ultra liberal, just, you know, the government owes me everything type stuff. And Jesus was a socialist. And it's like, we're, have people lost their heads on yeah. one sense <laughs> yeah. of the other? Yeah. You know, I think, you know, for me, as I think about this, the starting point is I think we all need to begin that government can become an idol to anybody on any side. It can never mm-hmm. serve that place. Government is not a total solution. And noble, I mean, when you recognize that and government doesn't have the answer for, for everything, you're, I think you start at a good place. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's good. And, and, and can never be your, your savior. It's it can never, and, and I don't in the sense of being your savior, but I won't get into that. Yeah. So defending your faith doesn't necessarily mean um, putting in the candidate that, that, that best represents how you see morality. Okay. I mean, we have, mm-hmm. we have immoral leaders. We had immoral leaders. We have them today and we had them four years ago. Okay. So let's not, Anyway, so another thing, maybe we can kind of look at some of this stuff here is, um, you know, he says in verse number four that the false teachers, they crept in unaware. I think I taught this on, did we talk about what this word meant previously on the podcast? It had to do with leeches, how leeches sneak up on people. And they, you know, this is like a leech, leech type behavior. They suck the blood out of you. Um, you mm-hmm. know, I've, I've talked about this before. I don't remember where podcast, but you know, leeches, when they, I did a little research on this, not that I'm a biologist or a zoologist, but I think it's pretty standard for the course that when a leech bites you, um, you don't really feel it. That's because they release sort of a, um, what is it? Uh, anti-pain anesthetic into you that numbs the pain. Um, Mm -hmm. and they begin to suck your blood. So this is kind of the behavior of a leech. Well, this is what he's saying about the false teachers. They're in they're they're amongst you. He, He later says they come into your love feast. You don't even know that they're there. They buddy up to you they're amongst you and they, they, and then before you know it, they're sucking your blood and they're, they're reducing you to nothing. Um, Mm -hmm. so, and then he calls them godless. Now godless is a term that, that really becomes a favorite towards for Jew. Okay. And when you see a biblical author introduce a a term and he's using it often, you've got to ask yourself, well, what does he mean by this? Right. What, what is he, what do you mean by that? That's a great thing to ask people. What do you mean when you say that? Um, mm-hmm. For instance, uh, there's this term deconstruction, right? What, what does somebody mean when they say they're deconstructing? Because deconstructing is not always a, a, a bad thing. Um, deconstructing in the sense of how maybe progressive Christians do it is, is not good. But in a sense, we've all deconstructed something to, to build a better theology as long as you're constructing at the end of it. Well, he says they're God, they're, they're godless. I mean, this is, this term, I don't think means that they're, um, they're lascivious, you know, they're in fleshly type sins. I don't, it could mean that it, but I think what he really means by this is that it means their irreverence towards the, the irreverence sticks they have towards the things of God. I mean, irreverence is a very ungodly thing, right? Your attitude yeah. towards God. You know what I mean? When you're irreverent, mm-hmm. you're basically saying that you're, you have more respect and regard for your own ways than you do the ways of God. That's a exactly. really, that's a really big recipe for sin. All right. 
I, I value my way more than I value God's way. And I'm going to mm-hmm. look down on God's way. And how did, how was God's way revealed back then? They didn't have a canon of scripture. They had the old Testament scripture, right? They did. Yeah. That was scripture, mm-hmm. but they didn't have a new Testament canon. They had some letters going around, but we didn't know. We don't know if they had these letters and we don't know which of Paul's letters they were reading, which of who they considered the apostle. So what, how do we know what irreverence means? I think, we can get it this way. Number one, how they interpreted Old Testament Torah. I think that would show their irreverence. Number one. And number two, I think their attitudes towards the apostles and the apostle doctrine, which is, is showed us in, in the verse, the verse three. So I think that carries over an application today. When we consider what our reverence looks like, our irreverence may look like, I think it's our dismissal of tradition that's been handed down, accepted doctrine. And I think it's the way, I think it can include how we read scripture. We can have a very irreverent way of reading scripture. I think some of the applications, people, when people go into scripture and they make it all about themselves, they never think, they never think about anyone outside of scripture other than what God is doing in my life, how this might benefit mm-hmm. me and they become selfish. You're showing a very mm-hmm. irreverent attitude towards Christ and God. And you're making this all about yourself. I think that's, I think that's, you're getting into trouble when you do that, to say the least. That's, you know that's good, Chris. Orlando? Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. Wow. Yeah, I, I, this, this, is so, this is so rich, man. I, I think it's important that because I think a lot of times we we can look at it through that lens of being selfish. How does this benefit me? Just all what you're saying. And I think it's important that we read Scripture in the idea of what the with, with one hand on love. If that makes sense, that that's our foundation. That's what Paul said. I want you to be rooted and grounded in. Right. And so I think that's important. And love is about thinking about someone else and how like how does the scripture change how I approach someone else? How can I believe and be in faith for someone else? And I think that's important. And so anyway, that's great, Chris. That's great. So 11 through 13, we'll jump down to these scriptures here. He says uh, in 11 to 13, uh, woe to them. Now, you know, when you see the word here, woe, I mean, we don't really make a big deal out of the word woe, but it is, it is. Okay. So the way that you said this way, which when I think about the book of revelation, you have the woes that are pronounced upon Babylon when it falls. Mm-hmm. Now this was, this was a language for a funeral dirge. So you would see this word woe, within funeral speeches or dirges that were at the time of funeral. So this is real funeral language. This is mm, really powerful. Yeah. This is stuff you see at a funeral. So he's yeah, really yeah. pronouncing to them, like, this is grief. This is bereavement. This is sadness. This is, this is the end is death type stuff for them. Mm-hmm. That's pretty, I mean, nobody's going to be at Jude's church next week. If he preaches this sermon, right? Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to hear this being preached at some places. He says, woe to them for they, here we, now we see three more, three more triplets. They walked in the way of Cain. Mm-hmm. They abandoned themselves for the sake of Balaam's error and they perished in Korah's rebellion. So what's, what is he doing? He's going back to the old Testament. Again, you see mm-hmm. how he's using scripture. He's pulling, he's making, he's, you know, this is why I tell students that schools, uh, Bible school is great. 
you can have it, if you can afford it. Um, because these guys aren't dummies and they know how to read scripture and they're, they're doing good hermeneutics right here. And I, I say that prophetic, we often think the prophetic has to be thus saith the Lord or somebody on the right corner of the room, you know, your ankle is hurting, come up and get healed. Like, sure. That's the limitation of how we understand the prophetic. Then we're, if that's it, then we're in, we're in deep trouble. Yeah. I think when you see God's apostles, the prophetic means how we read scripture, how we make connections using the scripture. Okay. And in their case, how they make connections with their day, what was happening in their day and with their scripture. Makes mm -hmm. sense. How yeah. do we make connections with what's happening in our lives today and the word of God or the scripture, of the text? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's so it's a hermeneutical question. How are we reading scripture and can we be that way? So he does that. And he says, well, like Cain, I mean, what was Cain's big problem? Cain was like, you just goes back to what you were saying, Elijah. He was devoid of love. There's, there was no love in him. Right. Yeah. Balaam. Oh, well, you know what his error was um, teaching. Okay. For gain or for, you know, to, for mm -hmm. filthy lucre as scripture says he wanted, they wanted to make money. He was a sellout. And then Korah was obviously insubordinate towards um, the ordinance of God and towards church leaders. So they were rebellious. This goes back to what I'm saying. This is where they were, this is where they were falling short um, and being irreverent. They had no love. They were in it for the money and they, mm -hmm. they disrespected scripture and they disrespected um, the apostles. Now, I think that maybe we might be tempted to make the application and say, well, this means I have to do everything my pastor tells me to do. I think you need to, people should obey their pastors. You know, having passed for six and a half years, I'm all for that. Mm -hmm. But I also think it means that we need to have respect for the, the, there's, I mean, the apostles doctrine, the apostles. I mean, one might call themselves apostle, but with a little a, the apostles, the 12, okay. Paul, these James, their doctrines are the ones that we need to um, really have regard for. And also pay attention to how, church fathers that were closest to them in times of controversy interpreted those and gave us creeds like the apostles creed and the Nicene mm -hmm. creed. I mean, these are, this is orthodoxy. It's acceptable. Orthodoxy was, it was fleshed out. And I think that we need to have a regard for tradition because people today, they want to just throw it to the wind. We don't need mm -hmm. to obey tradition. We just need Jesus. And I think you get into a lot of trouble when you get into those areas, you know, you eventually get into some, some serious trouble. It's just a perfect illustration. Once again, when you have an understanding of these things and how it opens up, it's just it's next level stuff, just because this is stuff we see even today. The same attitude yeah. today, being loveless, being greedy. We see that with preachers and, and different things that happen, not judging anybody, but we just we've seen it is what I'm saying. And so yeah. it's just it's so it's so rich. Continue. Yes, sir. Great. And so, so in verse number 16, and guys, guys, listen, let me, let me say this real quick. Guys, listen to the podcast. Listen, if y'all can listen to Joe Rogan. For two and a half hours, you can you can sit down and relax and enjoy. Okay, continue, brother Chris. I just had to get someone straight. I could sense it in my heart. They were getting nasty. You you you're all right, man. This is this is life changing stuff. Okay, go ahead, sir. Good. Okay, so you see here in um in verse number sixteen, kind of what these individuals are, and you see there's grumblers, and then you see that there's mm -hmm. there's malcontents. I like the word here, malcontent, Miss Femoroy. Because what he's doing now, again, this goes back to Jude's brilliance. Okay, he's talking about uh, a malcontent being somebody 
that was a character in a play. This was a, so you had this, I forgot the name of the, the classic um, playwright that wrote this book. I have it in my, it's in my book, Greek words that I wrote on it. He had this book about different characters that stock characters, stock characters, the type of character that would show up in a play, right? Like a, mm-hmm. a stock character would be the hero would be the villain, like mm-hmm. in, in, in Lion King, the hero, Simba, the villain, Scar. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, the, mm-hmm. the cowboy with the white hat that rides off into the sunset, the villain, the cowboy with the dark hat, okay, that, that you know, has the, the six shooter that takes the, the princess, puts rope on the train track. This is all stock imagery. Exactly. Okay? Mm-hmm. Well, you have that in, in Greek play, right? And one was the one was the malcontent. This was the this was the misphemorite, right? and and he would complain about everything. He complained about everything. If if you said that he won the lottery, he'd say, "Well, it wasn't enough." If you said that, you know, somebody found a treasure in the street, they'd say, "Yeah, it's enough to pay my house, but not enough to take care of my kids." He couldn't make the guy happy, no matter what happened. In other words, we'd say it like this: the grass is always greener on the other side. No matter what, there's always something better. And this is a really, it's a really bad way to live. You'll never be happy with anything and you'll miss a lot of opportunity. But anyway, what were they complaining about? What was never good enough? The law of God, the law of God for them was never good enough. Now we, we got to be careful when we read Paul, that we don't get a bad opinion for the law. Paul never had a bad opinion mm-hmm. for the law. He's very careful to say the law is good. Yep. We look at it like, oh, the law is so bad. I don't know. It's only bad because you're bad. <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It's only bad because you're bad. If you were good, look at the law is a good thing for the people that are keeping the law. You know what I mean? Like the law is the reason why the law is the reason why I don't have to worry about someone, everyone robbing my house at night. I mean, somebody may break the law for the most part. People, most part, people are law keepers. Okay. So if you're not, you're not breaking the law, you got nothing to worry about. Well, these, these individuals, they had a problem with the law. Why can't we do this? Why can't we do that? Why can't we, how come God, why, why do they get to live that way? We can't live that way. And, and maybe they're not saying it this way, but he's talking about their attitude is this. When they make, when they move the goalpost to live lascivious, not walking in love. Okay. Yeah. Going back to the era of Cain, going back to the era of Balaam, going back to the era of Korah, when they do these things, is this complaint about the law of God, that God's law is not good enough. And they heap upon judgment upon themselves, which is really, which is really problematic. Now, in closing, um, what we'll talk about, what I think the big takeaway from Jude is here, okay, is when you get to the last few verses, um, Jude chapter 22 to 23 is that he still shows you that despite all of this, I mean, I always say that when you, you read scripture, no matter where you're reading, you should always learn something about the nature and the character of the triune God. If you're not finding that out, you're mm. reading it wrong. That's good. And he says, he says here in verse number 22, he gives you three classes of people, how to reach these people. Okay. First example is, is he's basically talking about how to win people back who've been victimized by false teaching. And there's a lot of wisdom in this. There's a lot of wisdom in this. Number one, he says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on, on those people who doubt. Hmm. I mean, that, that, that really goes a long way. Because I don't think our attitude, I think our attitude towards doubt has been super pejorative. Yeah. Like doubt, God uses doubt to draw us closer to him. 
it's the exact tool that God uses. I mean, we're like star of your doubts and that's, I get why people say that, but mm-hmm. in a sense that also makes us think if we're doubting, there's something wrong with us. And I don't think that's really it at all. I'm not saying that doubt is the goal, but I'm saying that if somebody's doubting, we shouldn't treat them as though they're, they're, they're in hell already. You know what I mean? Sure, so, sure. Yeah. so this is kind of a, a nice statement here. He's not really charged with anger. And so I think that might say, Hey, if you know someone who's doubting going into some sort of false teaching, why don't I have coffee with them? He took the punch, take them out. Don't make it some sort of intense thing. Just chit chat with them and, That's really good. And, and, and engage into a conversation and, maybe get a hold of them while they're hesitating, you know, and I don't think you need to put a lot of pressure on yourself. Cause again, we go back to it's God who calls us. We just don't mm-hmm. express some sort of or treat them like the devil. It's just be cool. You know, just be you and have a combo. Okay. But then it kind of gets a little bit more intense here. He says to others, um, show mercy. Uh, no, excuse me. It says save others by snatching them out of the fire. So this one is, mm-hmm. this one's a little more intense. Okay. This is the person who is on the wrong path and in need of a full frontal confrontation, right? Yeah. This is somebody that you're like, wait a second. You're not just hesitating anymore. Um, you're somebody who is in the fire. You are pretty, you're getting there. And what the most loving thing you can do to that person is not just, <laughs> or just pray for them. If you really love them, you have a full frontal in respect and love confrontation with that individual. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know how to defend your faith and if you don't know how to articulate it, you're, this, you're not going to be very good at this, you know, this is, or, or you're not led by the spirit. We should say, this is not going to go well. So it just shows you, we need to be committed to our faith to actually do these things. Finally, he says here, um, to others. So here we have another class of people show mercy mm-hmm. with fear. So he says, mercy, you know, be merciful, hating, even the garment stained by flesh. So this is somebody who is in the grossest of heresies. All right. Mm-hmm. So we don't know what, what they can be doing all sorts of type stuff, but somebody who's sort of created their own version of salvation and is living a lifestyle that is displeasing to the Lord. And he tells you that when you do confront this person, you need to be careful. Lest mm, that yeah. stain stain you. Yeah. And that showed you the, the inviting presence of sin, how they could talk you out and make you go their way. So you have to be really careful in that situation. Use discernment. Um, and, and finally he tells you here, um, to commit yourselves to the Lord in, in chapter 24 and 25. So he doesn't leave these people that he's talked about without hope. He gives you a solution. So I like to say it was a three point sermon at the end, three, three ways to recover people that are in false teaching. So you have a really great book, a lot of elements that are in it and really could provide a lifetime study. 
No, that's that's great, man. I tell you, you you did it, ladies and gentlemen. You went through the book of Jude. Come on, with a, a little bit more clarity, knowing a little bit more what's going on actually in the text. And so, man, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, well, brother Chris, where can people uh, you know hear about your ministry, see what yeah. you're doing, follow all that good stuff? Uh, they can check me out at chrispalmer.me. I mean, c h r s p a l m e r dot me. My books, my resources are available on Amazon. Um, check them out. Greek word study is probably my, my coup de gras at the moment where um, people really like that one. Um, then get that on Amazon, Greek word study, Chris Palmer, and we can go through Greek together and, and make it as simple as I think Greek can possibly be. No, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, guys, listen, thanks so much for being a part of the podcast today. Like I said, you you did it. Like I, I don't hate Joe Rogan now. That's not the, the that's not the first time I've made that comparison. I gotta make it clear. You gotta make it clear today. I, I don't hate Joe. I'm just saying. Yeah. If we got time for that. We got time for the word. That's just what I'm yeah. saying. And so I think it's a it's a beautiful thing. Well, Chris, would you just say a prayer uh, over yeah. our listeners as we begin to wrap this up? Yep, certainly. Heavenly Father, we just come before you in Jesus name by the power of your mighty Holy Spirit. I thank you for this audience. As they've listened, I pray that your word has gotten to their heart. Pray, Heavenly Father, that you fill them fresh with your Holy Spirit to live a life that is godly, that is pleasing toward you. I pray for those that, that are in sin or that are hesitating, Father, and moving the goalposts of what your written word has said. May you have mercy on them. Use us in a way, Lord, that brings them back to the truth. Help us to be articulators of your truth, Father. Help us to be light in darkness. Shine forth brightly, Father, so that all who hear us, all who see us, see Jesus living within us. We love you and honor you. We thank you for your mercy and grace by which we've been saved, God. Just pray that we live lives that are pleasing towards you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. That's wonderful. Hey, guys, listen, leave leave that like, a comment, the review. Uh, let us know that the podcast is blessing you. Reach out, get some resources from Brother Chris. I've got uh, I got a copy of uh, Strange Scriptures. We had him on talking about that. I've got my copy here. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. I'm enjoying reading it. I got the Greek word study on my tablet. I just got I got I got physical and I got stuff digital, man. <laughs> do what you got to do, guys. Do what you got to do and be blessed by it today. But we love you so much. Thank you for being a part of the podcast today. My name is Elijah. Merle, don't ever forget this now. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Thank you for listening to the Greater Than Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at MerleMinistries.com. That's M-U-R-R-E-L-L Ministries.com. Ministries International.